I'll turn to the book of the Revelation. You probably heard me say this before, but the last book of the Bible is pronounced Revelation. There is no S on the end of that. There's only one Revelation, the Revelation. So turn there if you would please, and we'll be reading out of this book in the second chapter. Last Sunday, we started teaching you on what we entitled, What Would Jesus Say? If he could speak to his church today, and if it were possible in as much as he could be here tangibly and be able to talk to us as he did with his disciples of old, what would it be that he might say to us? Obviously, he speaks. I'm not suggesting that he can't talk to us. I know that he can speak to us. He can speak to our spirits. He can speak to us in corporate ways. But sometimes it's just good to be able to see it in print. What would he say to his church if we had an ear to hear that which he wanted to share? And we began last week, starting by way of introduction, that we certainly can't spend time covering this morning You can go to the website, LegacyCathedral.org, go to the media link, and you can download it off iTunes if you desire, and you can catch up and hear all the introductory material. But just to get our spirits up and going again this morning, I mentioned to you last Sunday that the church is the, the lampstand, and it is the carrier of the light of Jesus Christ, whereby we become the most important gathering, institution, organization in the world today. The most important thing that goes on is what happens in the house of God. We tend to think it's in Washington, D.C., or it's in some other state capital, or maybe it's in the great cities of the world. We tend to think that way, but I'm here to say to you that in the house of God, that's where the action is, and that's the most important stuff that that goes on because it holds within it the only answer to humankind. And we talked about that and gave introduction to that about the church. And it was to help us get a framework by which we can understand what God wants to speak to us as we study the seven churches of Asia. And these seven churches, I know some of you have probably received teaching on these seven churches before. And I would hope that you would be mature enough and understand that when it comes to Scripture, Scripture is a... Um, how do I want to say it? A, dy- a dynamic sort of thing. God uses his written word in a special way to communicate his now voice to us. And so when John wrote these things, as he received them from the Lord, he was speaking to real live churches of that particular era. As he began to write these things down prophetically and, and, and release them into the earth, we also know that within every era and w- within every century, these particular churches could have a specific, a unique uh, application to that particular era. And we want to underscore right now that I believe as we read the second and third chapters these next few weeks, that God is going to speak to us as a part of his church in a very relevant now sort of a way. The word church itself is the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia means the called out ones. We've been called out in order to affect our environment. We've been called out in order to affect the affairs of our community, the affairs of the state, the affairs of the nation, the affairs of the world. We've been called out in order to do something unique in the earth. And I believe God's bringing his people back to that unique place 
and that unique stature. You're not called to be like everyone else. You're called to be uncommon. You're called to be peculiar. How many of you know, if we start healing the sick, raising the dead, if some miracles start exuding from our life, that would be peculiar in our current time frame. Amen. And so we're going to learn what that means as we study each and every church. And this morning, we start with the church at Ephesus. And it's the first church that Jesus mentions. And we're going to be reading out of Revelation 2, those first seven verses. And I've entitled the lesson this morning, Keeping the Main Thing... The main thing. Keeping the main thing the main thing. If you have your Bibles, open it up. And I'm going to read. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. And he begins to give... He begins to give words to the culture of what was taking place at Ephesus. It says, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, says the Lord. Now, I'm going to mention the Nicolaitans here just for a second. The Nicolaitans were a group that had an unusual philosophy. They had an unusual viewpoint that had infiltrated the life of the church. Now, I'm not going to deal with the Nicolaitans this morning because you're going to see their name crop up again in another church on down the road that had actually embraced this particular doctrine. But here at Ephesus, it says, I know that the Nicolaitan doctrine came your way. And I know when it came your way, you rejected it, you did not embrace it, you did not adhere to it. In fact, you hated it. And Jesus says this, I want you to know that I hate it too. Now, I got to leave you with that little bit of suspense with the Nicolaitans. But Jesus doesn't like it. Now we'll leave it at that and go on. He says, he who has an ear, verse 7, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And again, we're going to be talking about keeping the main thing the main thing. Now, I mentioned to you last week as I tried to give introduction to some of the imagery and the symbolism that I knew would come through as we would look at these churches, that when Jesus speaks to the angel of the church, he is talking to what we might call the prevailing spirit or the culture or the environment that is found in that particular location. Now, I believe that every church, every local church has a unique niche or an aspect of the vision that the Lord releases to it. I think this is really important, that just as everybody in this room is not exactly like the person sitting next to you. Can you say amen to that? I mean, it's like that's good news and that's bad news, all right? Because there are some things you'd like to have probably that that are in the qualities of the person next to you, and there are some things you probably don't want in the qualities of the person next to you. But the point is, all of us are unique, 
All of us are different. All of us have different aspects of personality and all those sorts of things. And I personally believe that when it comes to a local church, that every local church will have its own personality. And it will have its unique niche. And that God doesn't do these cookie-cutter sort of things in order that every single local church in the earth is exactly the same. We are not all the same, nor should we be. But each has a personality that God uses to accomplish His mission in the earth. And I want to call that a church culture or a church environment. I I mean, every single local church has one. And uh, for some, it's way different than others. For example, some churches... Uh, you will go to are very formal. They're very, you could call it stiff. You would walk in and instantly you just go. I mean, I grew up in a, in a mainline denomination and I can remember going into church. I mean, it was kind of a holy thing, a reverent thing. And, and even if you walked into the sanctuary when nothing was going on, there was something about it that just made you go. I mean, it was, it was that kind of an atmosphere. Now, we all know that in the era we're living in, you can go to some churches and it's just, it's just almost like going to the beach, I mean, or going, you know, to the coffee bar or going anywhere. They're, they're, they're rather loose and maybe they don't dress up. <clears throat> I'm not making a judgment on that at all. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not judging it. I'm just giving you an observation that every local church can be different. We dress up. Some of us like to dress up. Some of us will dress down. Some churches will use liturgy and, and they'll be very ritualistic. Other churches, you can walk in and you can tell they're flying by the seat of their pants. You don't know what's going to happen next. Only God knows what's going to happen next. Some churches are very quiet in their approach. Some are very noisy. Some are, are, are very doctrinal. Others are very anecdotal and testimonial. I could go on and give you all the different types of churches and church culture There might be out there, but the key to it is that most of the time we tend to gravitate towards that which fits our preference or that which fits our taste. And and we gravitate, hopefully, with, with a sense of God being in the equation and that the Lord might be leading us in order to unite, in order to accomplish whatever the unique aspect of the vision of that local church may be. I tell you this because I just want you to know that style, what we call style, is not what the Lord is concerned about. Personally, I don't know if, 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 if the pastor wears a robe or he doesn't wear a robe. If the pastor wears a tie or he just comes up in sort of t-shirts and, 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 and slacks. It doesn't matter what the style is. The key is, is the main thing, the main thing. It's, it's not about the style. It, it, it's about keeping the main thing in focus. And here at Ephesus, There's an interesting thing going on because the culture at Ephesus shows us several things that are happening, but they had lost sight of what the main thing was all about. As I've come to understand Ephesus, Ephesus was the greatest city in Asia at that particular time. Ephesus was actually a port city. It would it would resemble in certain ways even our own city of Charleston because it was sort of a gateway to the entrance of all of Asia. If you were going to Asia, you probably went through Ephesus. Everyone from every nation would pass through this particular city. And so because it was sort of the hub of all that kind of activity, there was a lot of diversity. Um, It was considered a melting pot for everything imaginable. Now, 
I understand here in our city in the 21st century, we have certain restraints and certain aspects that that give us a, a sense of decorum or a sense of order. But if you can think back even to the 18th century, the 17th century, and begin to think just through your history about port cities. I mean, port cities because you had sailors that had been out to sea for months and they came to town with money in their pocket ready to burn. How many of you know they could find places to spend their money? I mean, there was everything imaginable, both good and bad, in the city of Ephesus. And port cities were notorious for that. They were notorious for giving... Uh, all the things that, that weary sailors and seamen might want. They were just known as being a melting pot for things that were really uh, cutting edge and, and neat and other things that were perverted and, and, and debauched. And so as you would come into Ephesus, you would have this great melting pot before you. Even religion was a melting pot there in Ephesus. And some of you may know that, that there in the middle of Ephesus was the center for the worship of Diana. Diana was a goddess, a Greek goddess, and the temple was called the Temple of Artemis. And I won't give you all the details about the temple except to say that it was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And and so this temple was there in Ephesus, and it was just an incredible city of activity, and it was full of good things, it was full of terrible things, it was full of religious spirits and outright occult activity. And this is the place that Paul and Timothy would go to and they would start a church there in the city of Ephesus. And it's interesting that as they start this church in the city of Ephesus, that eventually the church at Ephesus would rock that city. I cannot tell you all the stories I've told you in times past. There was a showdown at the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana, where where uh, John was there and prayed and There was a pagan priest that prayed there as well. And God sent a lightning bolt from the sky that actually split the demonic statue that was out front. And one of the historians said, and many people were converted that day. I always laugh. Every time I would read that, I just chuckled. I thought, I bet there was a lot of conversions that day. But but they had a ministry there at Ephesus that rocked the city. and, And it grew eventually by some estimates to 25,000, actually one quarter of the population of Ephesus had actually made a profession of Jesus Christ. It's interesting as you read the book of Acts, as Paul leaves Ephesus, he spends a couple years there, and as he leaves Ephesus, he gives one of the most beautiful passages and benedictions in all of Scripture in Acts chapter 20. If you ever want to read it, you can go to Acts 20 and start with verse 17. And he begins to bless the church at Ephesus. And he begins to speak to the leadership there. And he says some really touching things as you think about this man who was leaving his baby. And he was, in fact, he tells them, I'm never going to see you face to face again. Can you imagine spending that kind of time looking at people saying, you're on your own. I'm not going to see you face to face. He'd write to them later, but he'd never see them face to face again. And as he prophesies to them, It's interesting, as I was reading it again in Acts chapter 20, he prophesies difficulty. He says, you're going to face some challenges, and you're going to face some difficult days. You're going to face some things that are going to really test you and put you to the test. But he he, he tells them that that it's not going to be uh, easy. He tells them that it's going to be some external things that are going to happen. And even some internal things, he says, will happen. He, he goes ahead and prophesies to him. He says, you're going to have some issues within the ranks even of your leadership. 
And, and he begins to prophesy all of this, and I thought, what a word to leave town on. He's leaving town, you're never going to see him again, everybody's heartbroken, and, and, and he just he goes and he gives them this prophecy that just says, it, there's going to be some tests. How many of you know that just blows the, the teaching that some of you have heard through the years like I have, that God always gives a good word? I don't know if I'd consider that good at the moment if I was Timothy being left the pastor that bunch. Hearing a word saying, you're going to be tested, there's going to be, there's going to be things that will happen externally and internally, and you just get ready. I'm not sure I'd want to receive that. I'd probably fall back into my old charismatic ways and say, I don't receive that in Jesus' name. I cut myself free from that word. Because God only speaks good things to me. Well, apparently not. Paul tried to get them ready. And so here we are, I don't know, some 20 to 40 years later in Revelation chapter 2. Probably about 40 years as I figure it. 40 years later, the church... The church has now has about a generation under its belt, 40 years. That's a good long time, isn't it, for a church? And so here we're reading in Revelation chapter 2, and Jesus is speaking through John. And the Lord begins to describe this church that was planted by Paul and ultimately pastored by Timothy. And John spent a good deal of time there as well. And, and they received this prophecy uh, when he left. And now Jesus says, a generation later, I'm going to speak some things to you and I'm going to identify some things that you've done real well and some things that haven't gone so well. In fact, you're going to see that with all of the seven churches, the Lord's going to have basically four or five similar things that he's going to do with each one. First off, he's going to praise them for something. He's going to say, well, I'm going to at least tell you one thing that's going on right in in the midst of what you're doing. And then he's going to tell them they've got some problems, though, and here are the problems. He's going to give them an instruction or a precept that they need to implement if they intend to get things right again. And then finally, he leaves them with a promise. He says, if you'll do what I've just told you here, this is what ultimately will take place, and he gives them a great promise. So every single church will have these features to it. And uh, the church of Ephesus is the one we're going to start with. The first thing he says here about Ephesus is praising them. First is praise, what they were doing right. What, what, what's going on here that's good? Well, as I was reading and I was breaking out uh, my, Greek, uh, uh, my Greek New Testament, and I was reading through that again, kind of looking at the vocabulary that was being used. And, and it says here, as I was looking through that, that there's some really good stuff that's going on. The Bible says that the Ephesians were toiling in faith. They were working for the Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us that they were working so diligently for the Lord that they were even getting weary. It, it, it says here that, that uh, he knows their labor, their patience. Uh, he says that you've not become weary. In fact, the very words for labor and work are, are words that indicate they're sweating. They're putting the time in. They're doing what they need to do. They've been tenacious. They persevered under less than perfect conditions. I mean, Ephesus was a tough city. I mean, it had huge issues in that location. But he says, you've done a good job. He says, you've kept your your standard. He said, you've kept your standards because you've identified evil and you wouldn't tolerate evil. You've watched out for false doctrine. You wouldn't allow false doctrine to come through, whether it be through false apostles or the Nicolaitans. He said, you would put Christian workers as they would come through to the test. And you made sure they were who they said they were. And you just didn't let any John Doe go after it. He said you did a good job there as well. You checked people out. 
And he says, all of this is good. In fact, all the things that Paul wrote to them in 1st and 2nd Timothy, which is where we find most of our leadership passages in 1st and 2nd Timothy, they had applied all of those things exceedingly well. And Jesus himself says, you've done a good job. You've, you've got a culture of order. You've got a culture of righteousness. You've done a good job. However, he says, number two, there's a problem. Even in the midst of all this good, there's a problem. Something's not quite right. And he says here, you've lost your first love. Literally, you've left your first love. I looked that word up in the lexicon and it was interesting because what it says here is, is that they abandoned, they neglected, or they forsook their first love. Now, listen to me real carefully because he's not saying here, as you study it, that somehow they've, they've, they've just kind of lost their... Well, you know in our modern culture, let me put it to you this way. You know how oftentimes you'll hear the remark, well, I just, I'm not sure I'm in love with them anymore. And people kind of fall in love and they fall out of love. And there's this feeling kind of associated with love. And there are times we love going to this restaurant, but then, you know, it kind of gets old and we don't love it like we used to. Don't, don't confuse that type of love for what he's saying here. He's actually saying not that, you, not that you've abandoned sort of that feeling of love, but he says you've abandoned your number one passion or your number one priority. Now the question is, what would that be? Because he never really exactly defines it. Some people have said that it meant that they just practiced religious routine. They were just sort of routine in their, in their Christianity. They, they did all the things they were supposed to do. They checked off the list. They made sure that all the boxes were covered. But they didn't really love the Lord. And so I've heard many sermons of people preach that they were doing the religious thing, but they didn't actually love God. After all, He should be our first love. And they just had lost their love for the Lord. And I just was musing it and I was asking the Holy Spirit because I told you last week that to understand the revelation you have to have ears to hear what the Spirit says. So you can have the word and the fact but you got to get the the Spirit sense of it. And so I was genuinely asking the Holy Spirit I was saying help me Holy Spirit help me understand what was trying to be communicated here. Help me understand because you know people were doing what they were supposed to be doing. These Ephesians were doing some good stuff. I mean, is that not true? I mean, they were, they were keeping themselves clean. They were identifying evil. They, they were testing Christian workers. They were laboring for the Lord until they were weary and, and, and they were sweating and toiling. And, and, and so I just said to myself, is it really true? Could it really be true that people that were doing the good things they were doing, if you walked up to them and asked them and said, do you love the Lord, that somehow or another they would respond and say, well, no, we really don't love God. That was just hard for me to think would be true. I mean, why, why if you didn't love the Lord and you weren't concerned about what the Lord thought, why would you even risk offending people by giving them a test? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, I have. Why, why even put people through the ropes and the hoops and the ringers and all the other things if, if, if you're just doing it just to be doing it? I mean, why be diligent? Well, the answer, I believe, comes when we understand that the answer to that mystery is in number three, the precept. I think we can understand what first love is if you understand what he says for them to do in order to address the problem. He says here, because you've left your first love or you've abandoned it, 
This is how you correct it. You repent and you do the first what? Everyone say that. Say works. Do the first. Say it. Works. Works. He says repent and do the first works. Now I want you to notice he didn't say repent and pray more. Although I think praying is very, 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 very important. He did not say repent and read your scrolls more. Read the scripture more. He didn't say that. Although how many of you know Bible study is very, very, very important. So what is it that the Ephesians are to do? I've come to the conclusion that whether or not it it was based in their relationship, it wasn't so much about working, working on so much what the relationship was as much as it was doing the first work that they did when the Lord met with them and saved them and they began to do the ministry of the Lord there in the city of Ephesus. I don't know how it was with you and how long you would say you've been saved. But I I, I have identified, and you've heard me say this back when I was probably mid and mid-year of my 18th year, is when I got born again. It was a cold February night in Olathe, Kansas. And it was a rock your world night when I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. And it was one of those kind of moments that dramatically impacted me and it affected me. Some 29 years ago, I started thinking about how long I've walked with the Lord now. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but 29 years, when you say it, say it seems like a long time ago. And, and I started to ask myself, well, what was it, Kevin, that you did when you first met the Lord, when you first confessed Jesus, when you first embraced him? And, and I started thinking about those early, even those early weeks and those early months of, of my relationship with Jesus Christ and what was it that went on in my life that was probably unique to that time period. And what I thought of was, was that everywhere I went, I just started talking about Jesus. And it's really interesting because nobody sent me to a seminar. Nobody had a program for me to sign up for. Nobody had this, this training course that I needed to be a part of. There was no organization to it. Didn't go to any classes. I didn't have a degree in witnessing. It wasn't like I felt like I was even called to it, but something happened at that moment that that I received Jesus Christ and I knew he was who he said he was and there was something that happened inside of me called transformation. There was something that took place at that moment that I couldn't help in those early days to begin to speak and tell and share and just talk about it. I mean, like I said, nobody said I had to do it. Nobody looked me in the eye and said, now this is what you do. It was just something that began to take place in my life. But I started evaluating 29 years this week. I started evaluating all the different cycles you go through as a Christian. And I thought to myself, That, you know, as you go through the years, the years start doing something to you. Apparently it did in Ephesus. And to be candid, as I began to look at my own life and evaluated my own walk, the years began to do something in me too. Because it becomes easy to begin to have a culture of order and to have a culture of righteousness. And that should be, don't, don't, 
misunderstand what I'm saying. Jesus looked at the Pharisees one time and he affirmed them greatly in some of the things they did with regards to order and righteousness. He said, your problem isn't that you failed at these areas. The problem is, is that you've neglected some other areas. And it's easy the longer you live for the Lord that you develop this overall culture. You can develop a culture in your life. You develop a culture perhaps at, at, at where you work, in your relationships, and your friendships. There's certainly a culture that takes place in the gathering at church. And all of these things have an appropriate place as to how Christianity walks out. But somehow, some way, we lose what was initially there as a first work. Here at Legacy, one of the things that I am very, very grateful for, and understand this is something we didn't program, we didn't organize, we didn't have a seminar or anything else. It's something that's, that's, that's a part of who you are as a people. And that is whenever someone comes to visit us or someone worships with us or whatever type of interaction folks may have, one of the things that I hear constantly and continually is, wow, everybody's so friendly. Now, that's really a good thing. And I commend you because nobody taught you that. I mean, nobody had a seminar and said, come to, we're going to have friendly seminar this week, and you come, and we're going we're gonna to give you curriculum and material and what it means to be friendly, and we've never had to do that, and and praise God for that, because there's a lot of places that just aren't all that friendly. But you don't have that problem. And so there's this culture. There's a culture of friendliness. There's a culture of shaking a hand, of, of reaching out, introducing yourself. There's this culture. And you're to be affirmed for that. It's, it's a great thing to have. But hear me, it's never been promoted. It's never been organized. We've never developed classes. We've done none of those things. It happens because it's in you. Right? I mean, I mean, friendly. I mean, if you're just, if you're just an old, just sour geezer. I, I mean, I mean, you can go to classes at Infinitum. And, 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 and you just still, you just still be sour. Because you need something to happen inside of you. Now, all of that's good and that's great, but here's the key. We need a culture, not just of, of friendliness or of order or even of righteousness. These things ought to be. But we need a culture of being a witness. I'll say that again. We've got to have a culture of reaching people. There's got to be a culture of, of talking about Jesus. See, that's what I believe the first love is because what is it when you get, whether it is you get engaged or you're dating somebody or you, you fall in love, I mean, you want to be around them, you talk about them, you mention them in your conversations. I mean, whenever it's in the natural, all those things begin to happen. Isn't not interesting, though, that as you get married and as you begin to live life, sometimes the mentioning of the old spouse doesn't happen as much as it did on year, you know, one. Because something happens. Now, if someone were to look at you and say, well, don't you love them anymore? You'd say, well, of course I love them. I mean, I sure I do. Look at all the things I do in order to demonstrate my love. Look at all the things that happen around me in order to, to communicate, communicate love. And all those things are, are good and great and wonderful in order. But there, there's that first love stuff. You know, it's the first love things. Like, you know, Trace tells me, and I'll be the first one to say that it's dwindled off through the years. Man, she, I used to write notes. Trace traveled with a, a public relations group, a singing group. And I would look on the calendar where they would be located as she would travel through the summer. 
And uh, I would write her letters and I would mail them and I would time it out just right. So whenever she would get to the next city, there would be a letter in that city waiting for her. Yeah, I know. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I know. I'm about ready to tell on myself, though. I wish I could tell you I kept up with that through the years. I'm not done a good job at that and need to do a better job. That's just some of the things, though, you do when it's your first love. And, and, and so we need to understand that there, there needs to be a culture of order and righteousness and friendliness and all those things are as they should be, but we cannot lose the culture of what love felt like that moment you met Jesus and you walked out and you looked somebody in the eye and said, I just met the Lord. And they look at you like you're Mr. or Ms. Bizarro. But you didn't care. You're in love. It didn't matter what anyone else thought or looked like or twisted their eyebrows or face or whatever. There was something in you that said, I love this Lord I've just met and I'm going to tell someone about it. And there was just this culture. You developed, I'll bet, a culture of sharing the Lord. But the years seem to do something that begin to steal it and take it away. I have a DVD that I want to share, and I, I, I think I don't need to set it up too much. I think you'll get it pretty quick. But it, it's about 10 minutes, so it's something that I guarantee will keep your attention. Please watch it carefully. And it's called Lost at Sea. And it has to deal with what kind of culture we're creating as the church of Jesus Christ. So guys, you can douse the lights and and, and get the screen ready to roll, and please watch overhead. coordinates and the manifest details of the Rosemary immediately. And I want a status report from the Corpus Christi in five minutes. Yes, sir. Seaman McMillan. Quite a night for your first tour of duty. Who are you? Choices, Jack. You, my friend, are about to enter the Valley of Decision. 
I'm sorry, mister. I have Let to... me ask you a question. What takes precedence? The vessel's facilities or its overall purpose? I believe the purpose of this vessel is quite clear, sir. Precisely. Our purpose should be quite clear. Jack, we are heading into dangerous territory. No way around that. However, inside this vessel is a comfortable place to be. And therein lies your choice. Will you go? Or are you also content to merely study about going? Sir, I do have to go. I have to serve the party. It's about to start. Jack, the party is almost over. rescue operation. Officer Burlow has prepared the lifeboats and we're ready to deploy. Everyone follow me. A rescue operation. Stanley, this man is dripping on my floor. My good man, Officer Brock. Let me assure you of one thing. There will be no rescue operation. But, 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 sir. Think. Do you know who takes their ship out in this kind of weather? those who wish to remain unnoticed. So if some group of drug runners have run afoul, I will be the last to risk life and limb to save them. Devils, all of them. But, 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 sir, this boat after all I is... know perfectly well the purpose of this vessel. Do you wish to have us all killed? No, no, sir. The whole purpose of being inside such a boat as this is that it protects you from the outside. Is this not clear to you, Officer Brock? Well, maybe. Maybe, perhaps not, sir. Sorry, sir. Seaman McMillan? Is that you I see joining the wise men? Yeah, yeah, about time. Ready? 
no, watch this. Only a handful of people. No, no, you don't understand. I've just rigged up all 24 lifeboats, everything that we've got. You're bringing what, 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 six people? Yes, sir. You're aware that it takes at least two people to launch one of these boats. Yes, sir. So you're telling me we're about to launch three lifeboats, a grand total of three, to fish out 76 people? Have you lost your mind? No, 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 sir. But those people only have managed to survive in this flatter temperature, and you brought me a half a dozen people. What is going on up there? You never approached them from the starboard. The whole design for the new raft is based upon you pulling them up from the stern. You want to be in 12-foot seas pulling somebody out from the stern? You can't even reach them. Trust me, I went over this thing for three weeks with Burlow. I've memorized the manual. I think you better catch up on some of your homework. Man, have you ever been on the new lifeboat? Aren't you glad you're not out in that weather tonight? I think it's time for church. Correct, the Rosemary was en route from Vancouver and filed a manifest stating a crew of 12 and 64 passengers. Can you please report on the status of the operation? Sir, this is U.S. Coast Guard Captain James Meyer. You and your crew are under orders to deploy all available lifeboats and crew immediately. Do you comprehend the situation you are in? You are their only chance. They have the boat to beat all boats. 64 crew, 24 rescue boats, and they launch three.
God's own image in man was the image of love until the storms of sin ruffled the waters and the reflection was distorted. But God was not outwitted. He invested all he had for everyone who ever lived. Through the ages, impassionate men and women have lived and died to preach Christ and his salvation to all tribes and nations. The love of God in a man's soul is 100 times finer and more noble than any motive that has ever driven him. To know the love of all loves is the secret of all secrets. My friend, I'm here to tell you the Church of Jesus Christ is not a pleasure boat, but a lifeboat for saving souls. And every hand is needed on deck. story, the DVD probably can preach itself. What's the answer to the loss of keeping the main thing the main thing? Jesus says two things. Here in verse 5, he says this. He says, repent. I want everyone to say that with me. Say repent. I just want you to notice the Lord didn't say start a seminar, organize a program, but he says to the Ephesian church who's doing a lot of good things, he says, repent, repent. Get a sense of brokenness for the self-consumption of the times that we live in. It's all about us, isn't it? And Jesus says that has to be repented from. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I, I want you to make sure you have this underlined in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, because so many times folks do not understand repentance, but Paul has one of the best short definitions right here. 2 Corinthians 7, beginning with verse 8, he says this. He says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry though only for a while. What he says here is, I wrote some things to you. I told you to straighten up in some areas and for a little bit you were sorry, but it only lasted just a little bit. Verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. And this is the good part, verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. What he says is sometimes we're sorry and we're sorry for all sorts of reasons. Well, we're sorry that we're caught. We're sorry that we're embarrassed. We're sorry that we'll probably look bad or it looks funny. You know, we're sorry that there were some consequences or repercussions. I mean, there are a lot of reasons folks get sorry. But he says the problem is not that just you're sorry, but it's a sorrow that has to lead to repentance. And repentance means a change of mind. 
a change of perspective. It, it, repentance is, is, is much deeper than just being sorrowful. And he says, if you want to get back to the main thing being the main thing, then the first thing you have to do is not just to be sorry. Well, here, right? I'm sorry, Lord. I probably should say more than I say. And I probably don't think about it as much as I need to think about it. And I know you've dealt with this with me before. And, and, and that's what we do. And Jesus says, I don't want that from you. I want repentance from you. I want you to not only be sorry that maybe it wasn't happening, but I want you to, to allow it to change the way you think and to change your focus and to change your perspective as to how life is to be lived. And then after he says repent, he says in the same verse, verse 5, number 2, he says, do the first works. There comes a moment. Did you notice that steward on the back of that little rescue boat? There comes a moment, I think, that you just sort of dive in. I mean, there, I mean, we can lead you through. You could open up a conversation like this and share with people. You could share with people like this. Some of you that have gone through the discovery classes know that we've gradually tried to lead you to, you know, put do- door hangers on and hand out cards and trying to do things that can kind of slowly break you out of the status quo of how you live life. But I'm just wondering now if it just isn't good just to dive on in. I was talking, I don't know if Svetlana's here today. Is Svetlana here with me this morning? There you are. We were in class the other night. She just tickles me sometimes. And I mean this good. We love you. But we were talking about how you would open up a conversation concerning the Lord. And we were getting all these wonderful answers concerning about how you would share the Lord or open up a conversation in a grocery line or something like that. And we got to Svetlana. And Svetlana goes, I just say, I just walk up to someone and say, do you know God? <laughs> And I thought, well, that, that's the direct approach right there. Very good. Don't you ever lose that. Don't you ever lose that. Don't you let us somehow squelch that out of you. That's a good thing. And Jesus says, if, if we don't repent and we don't do the first works, this is what he says. He says, I will come and remove your place as a lampstand in the city. He didn't, he didn't say I'd shut you down as an organization. He didn't say I'd stop what you were doing. He didn't say anything like that. He says, I'll, I'll cause you to no longer be a lampstand in the city. But here's the good news. The good news is if we choose to respond to the Lord, he gives a promise. There's always a perk to serving the Lord. He says this. He says, but if you'll overcome and you'll press in and you will do this. He says, you'll begin to eat of the tree of life. And I'll tell you what I believe that means. It not only means that there'll be this, this tree of life that's planted in the heavenly realm there in the streets of glory when we go to heaven. But I believe there's an imagery here that's speaking to us that you and I will begin to partake of the life of God. I mean, there's something about when you go, I don't know how it worked at your house, and some of you have small children, others of your children have grown up, and there are those of you that are somewhere in between. But I can remember going into my children's rooms at times, and I mean, it's just in disarray. The whole place is just in upheaval. And there's that instant thing that jumps in all of us that says, well, we really ought to tidy up and get this neat because we all want neat houses and neat rooms and we need to teach our kids how to make sure everything's in its place. But there's one thing you can't deny when you go into that disheveled room. Everything in it says there's life. I mean, there's life all over the place. There's so much life, you can't see what color the carpet is. I mean, it's the, and I'm telling you that there's something about life. 
There's something about the sounds of the new birth. There's something about the sounds of those that are growing and newly born into the kingdom. And we may do lots of things as a church that try to encourage you and emphasize in your spirit that you need to share your faith. But ultimately, ultimately, this is where it all boils down to. Jesus didn't die for a program. He didn't die for an organization, nor did he die for a seminar. He died for people. And he wants inside of people. And when he gets inside of people, he begins to work in them and change them. And we have to see for ourselves where we are as a person and where God wants me to be as an individual and let him put that love on the cross that he gave to us, let him put that in us again in order that we can begin to dispense it to others. We can program that, folks. And I'll guarantee you, I'd have, I'd have 60 folks come the first week and the next week there'd be 30 and the next week there'd be 15 and the next week there'd be five. And we'd all look at each other and say, well, you know, that's just kind of how it is in America. And we'd all try to find a way to make sure we were affirmed. And I'm just to the place now where why, why develop a program so it discourages you? Why don't we just preach the gospel and let God do something in us? Just like we can, we can be culturally friendly, and I didn't train a one of you. Good thing too, because if you got my training seminar on that, we'd be in real trouble. So you got it somewhere else, and you probably got it from the Lord Himself. And that's wonderful. But now we just have to have a culture of we just can't keep our mouths shut about Jesus. We just, we just, we just can't sit on it anymore. There's something that just comes out every time. We talk to people. God wants that inside of each one of us. And I tell you what I want to do as we close right now. I want everyone to stand with me, will you please, guys? Get ready back there in just a minute. We're going we're gonna to sing a song and then we're going to pray. But I want you to give me some heat on that, okay? Because all the congregation is going to sing. I want the words on the screen overhead. Is everybody ready back there? All right, everybody's ready to roll. Everybody's standing right now? I want you to sing. You'll get the tune real quick. And then I want you to start singing. And we're going to sing this song, and we may sing it numbers of times before our seven or eight weeks are over. But, but I want to be the church. I want to be a part of that organization, that people, that begins to see real change come into the earth. Guys, if you're ready, why don't you roll it? Everybody lift your voice up as we sing together. are alive, filled with your glorious light, out of the dark, into your marvelous light, we are Let the church rise
let the church rise Raise us up where we belong Moving with power Bringing your name to the earth Singing your praises, lifting our glorious songs. We are moving with His compassion.
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would descend upon us as a people and that, Lord, much like the church at Ephesus, there are many things we do that we can look to and say, that's good, that's good. That's important, that's right. But, Lord, help us to see right now that we're going to have to come to the duty point where we're ready to, to jump in and at the very least begin to say the name of Jesus, to speak the name of Jesus, to declare him in the earth. Lord, to have that, that burden and that power again to be able to share with folks, Lord, what you've done and what you are doing in our heart and life. And I pray now, Lord, that you would begin to descend upon us, that you'd begin to just to, to overshadow us. And bring us again to that place of first love. Lord, take us back to that moment when we opened up our heart to you in that original moment, that, that early, nascent way when we said yes to Jesus. And Lord, there may have been tears. It may have been dramatic. I'm certain it was impactful. But Lord, bring us back to that moment again, could you please, and cause that love to begin to rekindle its it's fire in our hearts. I pray right now in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would somehow break the numbness of the years. Lord, that you would break the professionalism of the years and, 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 and just the, the, the churchianity that we, that we just develop, Lord, that we lose the, the freshness, Lord, of our witness and our testimony that can be life to people. Lord, help us, Lord, as... As the world is so bold in its presentation of its darkness and its perversions and all of its other areas, Lord, as the world is so good at that and not apologizing, as it's so good at, as it speaks in workplaces and schools and it uses its profanity and its blasphemies and as it demonstrates, Lord, its, its darkness, Lord, how can the darkness be so bold and we be so timid? And, Lord, I pray right now that you would cause a reversal to take place in that regard. That we would indeed arise in this hour. And that, Lord, we don't have to be noisy and obnoxious, but we can be steady and strong. And we can be confident in what you've done in our life. And we can speak with authority the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would work that into each and every one of us. Cause us, Lord, not to find our lampstand being removed, but that, Lord, you would entrust us with that lampstand, that your light might shine through this local body. And, Lord, we know other bodies as well, but, Lord, this is the one we've linked to, and we want the lampstand to be here. So, Lord, let it be established here. Lord, I pray right now that that spirit of repentance would come upon each and every one of us. Lord, that we'd not be just sorry because we sort of just got snagged one more time and should have done better. But Lord, that we would have a, a mind change, a total mind change as to what we have been, Lord, as, as believers and Christians and, and now, Lord, embracing what you have spoken to us as the church. Lord, we're not neglecting or abandoning or leaving that first love. We love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, we want to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And, Lord, we want to be faithful and diligent in that regard. And I pray right now, Lord, that as that works in us, as we repent from, from our lethargies and our apathies and 
Sometimes our ignorances and sometimes even our innocencies, we just, we didn't think about it, didn't know until we were reminded this morning. But no matter how it arrived in us, Lord, as we repent from that right now, we commit to do the first works. We commit, Lord, as we interact to be aware of those divine nudgings when you tell us, say something about me to this person. We're going to be aware of your movements as we move down grocery aisles and checkout counters, as we go to work and, and we interact with people at desks, and as we go to school and we talk between classes at our lockers and other things. We're going to be aware of that, Lord, of those nudgings particularly when you're saying, this is the moment, speak my name. Lord, we want to be in your moment. We want to be used of you. We want to be a light that can be a solution in the earth and not a part of the problem. And Lord, I, I thank you right now that I believe you're working that in us as a people. You're working in individuals right here in order to accomplish that. And Lord, we receive that into our life in a brand new way. We receive it in a brand new way. Lord, I'm praying right now that there might be some that get burdened for their neighborhood that there might be some that get burdened for some, some group that they're a part of. It could be a men's group or a ladies' group. Lord, I pray right now for connect groups, that they'd get burdened just to begin to witness and think of ways to talk about their faith. That, Lord, we would become salt and light in the earth. Lord, I pray right now maybe that families would think of ways that they could do something in order to demonstrate of the truth of Jesus. Lord, I'm not asking them to carry a burden. I'm asking them to pick up a joy that was there in those early moments of their walk with you. So, Lord, do that in us. Lord, I, if, I could, if I could program the thing, I would, Lord. If I could one more time get this great organizational plan, Lord, I'd do it. But, Lord, I honestly believe that you're looking at us to leave a place like this and go 200 different directions and be the program. Lord, I pray that that would get inside each one of us, that it doesn't rest on me, doesn't rest on Trace, doesn't rest on Connect leaders, doesn't rest on anyone else. It rests on each one of us to be the church, to change the affairs of the state. And it starts by just letting the love of God roll out of us. Lord, let it begin. Let it begin right now. Right now, I pray. Right now, I pray. Right now, I pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Could you right now, whether you're standing or kneeling, just why don't you thank the Lord? We still function in faith. Why don't you thank the Lord that he's going to do that in your life? You came, you wanted that. And maybe you're, you're saying, well, I hope a feeling comes back, and I hope one comes back too. But whether or not the feeling comes, we're still walking by faith and being obedient by faith and being sensitive to his spirit by faith. Lord, thank you right now that you're doing that. You're going to be working in these people and they're going to be productive. I'm speaking productivity over each one of you right now. Not only, you know, we pray for your finances and your health and your marriages and your families and all those things are good, right, and in order. But now I'm going to pray that you'll be productive in kingdom matters concerning souls and people's lives, productivity with other family members, the family tree, productivity with friends, productivity with co-workers, productivity with people, strangers that you just run into by divine ha, coincidence, productivity. And there's going to be a joy in that. And you're going to make a marked difference in people's lives because of what God's doing in you right now. 
Don't say sorry, Lord, but change your mind. As you say you're sorry, change your mind. Let him change your mind. And Lord, we believe you're doing that. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. 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 Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Amen. And you know, next week we get to talk about a church that was basically doing everything right. So it's one of the two great ones. There's two out of the seven, really three. Ephesus was doing a pretty good job. But, but we're going to hear about what a good job church does next week. And so it's going to be a great lesson. I, I believe you'll be back. You're going to be back, right? Everybody's going to come back, right? Be the church. Amen. Hey, before you go, encourage each other, love each other. Start here. This is safe. You can start here. But then keep it going when you walk out those, those doors. God bless you. You're